Look, it's a flood. It's a flood. It's flooding. Get away. Quick, we need to get to higher ground. Open the floodgates. This is The Flood with Ziggy Minus Doc featuring friend of the pod, Per. Hello, Per. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing good. Cool. Doing good. We wanted to talk about the Bo Burnham special with you. Uh, well, mm-hmm. I did. Because you actually work in stagehand production. And with this show being basically a one-man show completely produced by himself... I know you would have a really unique take on it beyond the super relatable COVID lockdown and everything. So what's your first take? I was blown away by the creativity of it. There was a lot of things that like when I was watching it, like I watched it all the way through once. Yeah. And then I watched, and then I watched it again, but like, I was like taking notes of like little elements of things that he was doing that, um, I didn't catch the first time because the first time I wanted to just kind of it like immerse the experience like everybody else had, and then like, the second time yeah. around, I wanted to really like I-, I wanted to figure out how he was doing things, how he was queuing things up. There's this term that's been used a lot in our end of the industry, pandemic tech, which is okay, just that's interesting. Buying, just buying like a lot of LDs that I know. Um, that usually have their access to their gear by via shops and rentals or when they're on tour they or they're at a house they have all the gear provided to them and when the pandemic hit a lot of guys lost access to a lot of that expensive gear like a lighting console for example usually that can cost anywhere between you know five grand to you know 75 grand depending on yeah what kind it is so it's you know not a lot of guys straight up just own that kind of gear so there was like the first couple of months there were a lot of guys that were just you know on facebook and networking and i was one of them just been like how can i build my own setup here at home with the budget that i have the access to gear that i i can get and without having to drive like anywhere out of state because I'm lucky enough that I've got like three or four lighting and audio distributors like near my house here in, in Baltimore whereas you know those guys I know that are like out in the west that, that you know they got little like they have to drive an hour just to, to go get basic lighting equipment so yeah so did you see um, anything out of the ordinary or was it all the type of pandemic tech like you were saying in the special I, all the stuff that like I I he had some sort of controller. I don't know what, what the controller was. Um, I did notice, and there, there was a thing I noticed and I didn't catch it the first time around. Uh, and it's it kind of plays back into the theme of just kind of like burying yourself in isolation. Yeah. Um, the beginning of the, sh- the beginning of the special, like it, like not the very first song where it's like you're seeing him in in full mental decay of. Uh, I think it's comedy is the first song of the bit where it's the earliest into the pandemic and it's oh, very, uh, very 
the uh, here comes the content or what the fuck is going on. I actually took notes of all of the songs while I was watching. I think uh, what I think it's called. I think it's what the fuck the second song because the first song content was kind of like an intro, kind of like a um, yeah, healing the world with comedy. Yeah, it was kind of it was kind of like the thesis for the whole piece, and then like the next song after that where he's trying to figure out, you know whether it's appropriate to make comedy about it. It is making a lot of I wrote a couple of these lines down because they were just great. Like make a literal difference metaphorically. American white guy, maybe I should just shut the fuck up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just I I noticed that in the beginning of the show or the beginning of when he started it, he did not have a lot of gear. He had a obviously a brand new camera. A projector, which looked like just like a regular projector, but you could buy at Best Buy that he was using. And what looked like cheap DJ lights that you could get at Guitar Center for fairly inexpensive, like a Sean yeah. A DJ brand gear that, you know, you could, you could control using a smartphone or like a very generic DMX controller. And so you saw us add more gear over time. At the point of the show where he walks on camera but the camera is like super far back and he walks in the middle of the shot and he's like trying to say over and over again and he keeps he keeps like getting mad at himself like getting upset that he's been working on this for a year like he is completely surrounded by all of this equipment and like every song it just gets there's more of it and more of it and more of it and you can tell he's getting just enveloped in trying to just kind of like get reach that dopamine high of like, well, if I add this, you know, I can do this easier. If I buy this, I can do this easier. And I know what that's like. like, I'm thinking of like, he's in this small room, right? And he's adding more and more gear. So as he's going through quarantine, he's getting progressively more enclosed in this claustrophobic space. Yeah, he's 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 getting more, yeah, he's getting more and more isolated and more and more obsessed with doing this piece and finishing it and, and like it got to the point where I noticed he had uh, he had like ETC source 4 fixtures just like the, the kind of fixtures that we use at the Hippodrome like in a Broadway house like okay. they're not things they're not they're not things you can just buy like at Guitar Center you gotta go to like a specific guy to, to get them mm-hmm. and now Bo would have those type of connections but he had to take the effort yes, to yes and he Yes, and he. There's a couple names on the credits that, to be fair, Bo did everything himself. But he got assistance and a lot of input from other people. Uh, yeah, like lighting, showing was a, somebody. What do you think? Yeah, there was a lighting designer named Mark Janowitz who he kind of at, he kind of helped as a um, I guess as like an aide sort of to kind of help him out because I like I would assume. Bo came, and I know Bo came from the theater background because this is very much, this is very much a theater piece. This is not a stand-up or a TV yeah, this special. Yeah, this is a one-man show. And like, yes, for me, it was funny, but it, I never like laughed. It was always like, hmm, that's very clever. Yeah, it's, it, it was very, it was just, I did a lot of college theater growing up and seeing pieces like this. This was very much a... It felt almost like watching modern Chappelle. No. Mm-mm. No, it's it's so far removed from 
I, the Chappelle special, it was 846. That was, that's what it was called, wasn't it? Yeah, the one, the one that came out last Floyd. year. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's been a lot of specials lately that have kind of come out of the woodwork in the, in the stand-up comedy world where they've kind of, like, dipped their toes into doing some experimental stuff, but at the end of, like, still, at the end of the day, it's like, the formula is still there where it's like, you've got a skit at the beginning of the special, and then the comedian goes on stage and he does his he does his routine in front of a on stage in front of a live audience. And typically, you know, every, there might be a segue to some skit during the course of it, or there might be like, while the comedian he or she is talking about a bit, you know, they're going to cut to like a skit of the action that's happening while it's going on, or and at the end of the, the special, there's like some big overall thesis or meaning for the whole special. Yeah. Like in the case of 846, it was a combination of COVID and George Floyd, it being like a week or two after the, that I, it just happened. I was thinking more of it's not as much a stand-up, ha, 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 but it's uh, telling a story or trying to make a point. Yes. But there's been a lot of comedy, like comedy has kind of evolved a lot. And I know that he's very, he's very icky. So like Louis C, I think Louis CK, the popularity of that show where comedy became less like, I am dying of laughter at this, at these funny jokes. And it became more of a, a, a like a validation of going through your own issues. And like, it, it became more of a TED talk with jokes if that makes any sense, that's, that's yeah. kind of what the modern comedy format is. This was the complete opposite of that. This was this was a deconstruction of a comedy special, not just literally because it's him in his house with no audience because of the pandemic, but it's also a it's there is no setup of this being just jokes. There is no there is no consistent formula to it it's very jarring it it jumps around from place to place there's bits that just kind of abruptly end and transition into the next there's these visual elements and some of, of those transitions are just meant to make you extremely uneasy one of the yes, ones exactly. that is it sticks out in my mind is he's just like thanks everybody for watching all of my content we're gonna have so much and he's holding a knife in his hand the whole time yeah 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 it's it's so much of it is it's a lot more cerebral than what you're going to get from a Chappelle special or a Chris Rock special or, and it's not because of the nature of the jokes. Just, I, I'm just thinking of top comedians. I know that keep putting out like specials. So that, I love, I love Chappelle specials. I love comedy specials in general. I think they're, they can be very personal. Uh, this, this was something that I think transcends yeah, this was. Uh, and I wouldn't I, just call this a comedy special. Yeah, this is this was this was experimental theater, but not because there was a, there was a visual aesthetic, there was a tonal aesthetic, there was a a thematic elemental aesthetic to the entire from beginning to end. Whether it had like, and the thing is, is that made it more interesting is that all of this stuff. There, there's so much to pull out of it and you don't necessarily, and it's not even necessarily 
some of it's probably not even intentional. Yeah, so that's the thing. I was watching this, and if somebody was like, "What's your, what's like the theme of the special?" I would just be like, "There's a lot of it. There's, there's a lot. There's there's a lot there." There. To be to be fair, uh, Bo Burnham does have in his later works. He's very critical of social media and the internet, um, yeah. and a lot of that carries into this. But I think it's more resounding now. Like the, the, the one. I was actually talking to my coworker about that this morning because I asked him, like, hey, did you, you know, I went, I went, in the, I went into the port this morning and I'm like, hey, I watched the Bo Burnham specialist. I said, oh, man, I thought that white woman song was hilarious. I'm like, yeah, but it's really sad. And he didn't, he didn't, like, get it right away. And I explained to him, I'm like, well, think of it like this. Like, yeah, the white woman Instagram song is inherently funny because it's playing off the stereotype of the quote-unquote basic bitch that, you know, we all know it's just, like... I don't want Instagram. I see these girls pop up like their feeds all the time in just my regular Instagram feed, and I have to like block them or un- like remove them because I, I don't, I don't like seeing that stuff. I don't like seeing that kind of vanity and just like genericness of it. So yeah. I, I laughed at it inherently, and then it got to the part where the girl is singing about or talking about like her how much she misses her mom, how painful it's been that she's not there anymore, and how she how much she misses her dad and opens up. And when I rewatch and like and it's still just like, bring oh. like a cliche white girl, white woman's picture. That's the thing. And I didn't catch this until the second time around. Like the song is about how social media we're only putting out what we want people to see us as being. The real yeah. us is it real or is it a white woman's Instagram? Because the Instagram, it's a facade. So they try to present it as if it is heaven. And Correct. it just so happens that the white woman basic bitch is the most guilty of creating this false social media heavenly persona of them. But the, the girl in the song is doing it for the exact same reason that Bo is creating the special. Because they're t- the uh, the whole point of it is that they're trying to find a way to validate the self, validate everything by not necessarily letting people in on your own internal traumas, your own problems, you know, who you really are, because you don't want to receive criticism. You don't want people to look badly upon you because it creates anxiety. It creates, you don't want people thinking the worst of you. So the song plays in that. It was a self-aware self-awareness. Correct. He was self-aware of how his self-awareness affects the world around him, which is another level of self-awareness. Yes, and there's and to go back to how creative the production was visually for this. During the song, the ratio that the camera is in is the exact same ratio, like screen ratio that you would have on your phone looking at an Instagram profile. And it oh, stays wow. like that throughout the, it stays like that through the entire song. But when she, it gets to that third verse and she's talking about her mom and she's talking about her real self, that ratio opens back, opens up and the Instagram filter colored aesthetic kind of slowly fades away and just becomes a normal shot. But then as soon as that verse is over, the Instagram 
ratio closes back in and the filter slowly picks back up again and then the song finishes. I didn't notice that. I know one of the, uh, the production or post-production things I noticed is in all of these shots, he cranked the structure way up. You could see every single grain in the wood paneling, all of his hair was like, every single strand was completely. I think, I think, I think it was, I read that he had just bought a brand, that, that camera was a brand new like 8K UHD camera. I think it's 8K, yeah. I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a camera guy. Like I've, I've run cameras, but I like, I'm dumb when it comes to like resolution and stuff. But if you went on the Instagram and you go to the edit photo, and the last setting is structure, and it basically just takes all the lines, all the curves, and just sharpens them. I noticed that he had all of the structure really cranked up, or he had the camera pick it all up. I think you mean. I think you mean it's. It was highly saturated. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so it was. They were very deep saturated shots, which pick up. I think that was done so everybody could see all of the the small details that Bo was surrounding himself with throughout a year, which I'm sure he noticed, because if you're going to spend a year in a room, you could probably count the dots on the wall. Yeah, and I think he wanted that. And, and the thing is, is what's hard to gauge about the, the special as a whole is that you could tell it comes from a very genuine place just by the pure nature of it because it existed and it happened during something that we weren't really sure whether or not it was ever going to be an end to i'm not yeah. sure how much of it he planned out ahead of time how much of it he didn't it's it's very hard to tell which makes it that much more compelling to watch most specials everything everything is kind of laid out beginning to end. This is the bit we're going to do. Here's the producer. He's going to edit it after we, we film everything. We'll do in the post-production afterwards, blah, 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 blah. It's a very planned out element. And the comedian knows in advance the jokes he's going to do most of the time. And, you know, what he's going to talk about. It's very controlled. And I feel like just the nature of how this came about and how it was made, strange comparison I got vibes from this and like the, the first thing I thought of immediately after I finished watching it was that it reminded me of the same experience I had the first time I watched Evangelion about two years ago. And I'm not a big anime guy, yes. I, I'm a big science fiction guy and my and roommate- like, Evangelion like, is definitely an anime that at the end, you just go, whoa. The first thing I thought of when I talked to him about it, I'm like, it reminded me of Evangelion because I feel like if you're not in the right frame of mind before going into it, it can be very traumatic or yeah. it can be very uplifting and validating because halfway through the production of Evangelion, from what I understand about it, the first half of the show when initially it was created, it was just going to be a generic mecha robot yeah. fighting monster show. And then like halfway through production, what's the creator's name? Hideo he found like a psychology book and he read it and then he decided that he was going to change what the show was going to be about halfway through production and it became Hideke, Hideke Anno. that's it yeah Hideki Anno. and yeah. the show like halfway through production of the show in the writing process he said we're going to change what this is going to be about and it went from being a regular mecha show to 
of subversion of that and a show about dealing with trauma and dealing with self-isolation and anxiety and hating and loathing oneself and, and worrying if you're not good enough. Yes. You can you can watch the show as it goes and you can, you can see where it changes from one thing to the other. And I feel like with the Bo Burnham show with, with Inside, I, I have a feeling it's kind of the same thing. The early songs you can tell he did earlier in the pandemic. Yeah. They're much more traditional Bo Berman songs. And then the second half of it, it's just, it's it's not funny. Nothing about yeah. it is funny. It's, it's, it's dark, it's reflective, it's... Probably from the point where, I'll say once he gets to the unpaid intern layered reactions thing, that's where it kind of just starts to go off. Cause that's when he starts talking about, you know, his need for validation and desire to be seen as intelligent, this comedy to be seen as thoughtful. And I was just watching this and I was like, this is a visual depiction of what anxiety feels like. Yeah, that's the, the whole episode is a visual representation of anxiety and isolation and depression. I was talking to a friend of mine, my friend Ryan had for about two weeks now, he'd been telling me I really need to watch this. I finally watched it last night and he's like, what did you think? He's like, I, I really want to hear your opinion on it. And I was telling him how it's his, it's his perfect represent, physical representation of what it's like to be depressed, what it's like to be in your own mind and not to be afraid of leaving this space and not wanting to confront your issues, not wanting to confront your anxiety, not wanting to confront, you know, the things that have led you down the path that has led you to because you're afraid of pain, you're afraid of, of dealing my with My actions it. are my own and I won't explain them away. Or whatever the hell. Exactly. The melody yeah, goes. it's, I told him like my biggest, my biggest concern about the special, and I think it's a thing that I don't think a lot of people are going to pick up on, in the entire course of the show, yes, obviously, he's filming it from, and he's stuck inside the house because of the pandemic. Yeah. Granted, obviously, he did not stay in the house and not ever leave the house to eat or get food or anything like that. I can't I can't say one way or the other. Like, from, from what I understand, he has a girlfriend. It's probably just like a pool house or something. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not saying that he's faked any of this either. I, what I, I, I can imagine is like, spending 12 hours a day in there and then you know just like going inside eating dinner and then going to bed and then waking up and going into that box again yeah how different is that than just staying in the box it had i think i think you're right i think it was like a full house my big i told him my like i loved the special i thought it was very emotionally resonating and i think it's going to speak to a lot of people in different ways my biggest concern about it was i'm worried that People that are currently going through a depressed state or a they're in a bad place mentally because of all of this are gonna watch this because a lot of a lot of the show is inherently very naked. It's very yeah. critical of pretty much everything. everything. And and there's, it, yeah, and there's no real there's no balance to any of it. You know, he, he there's. I think he just comes out guns goes, blazing and starts hitting every single topic going on in the world right now. Yeah, it's it's therapy with some kind of darkly humorous jokes here and there. It's culture but with it's, context. What? Yes. 
but the very, but I told him like the important thing about it is I don't want people in a bad state to use this as a, as a reason to validate being sad and depressed and being like, yeah, the world sucks, the world's terrible, people are bombing each other, planet's gonna burn up, you know, you know, why care? Why do any of this shit? The, the, the whole thesis of it is that you can't stay isolated. You can't live only vicariously through the internet. There was the, you know, at the end of the show, after he goes, I finished it, you can tell he's just had enough. He's had enough of, of doing it. It's it's mentally draining him. He said that day, he's like, the one engages with the real world as a coal mine. Interact with that world to harvest content and then return to the internet. Correct. That, that line where he talks about, like, the real world is a theater, theatrical stage that we all live on. And, you know, we treat the internet as if that's our real existence. And that... That was probably the most painful thing to hear because, you know, I think a lot of us can relate to that. You know, the special, after he says, I'm done, I finished it, you can tell he's he's had enough. He's mentally exhausted. He doesn't want to do this anymore. He can't do it anymore or it's going to kill him. The sunlight comes through the door. The ending. And, yeah, and he, and he opens the door and he goes outside. And he's like... And everybody starts clapping. Everybody starts to go clapping. back inside. Yeah, and the th- and I told my friend like, he's like, well, he goes outside and he he freaks out anymore, and I'm like, yeah, because going outside of your comfort zone and taking that first step is incredibly difficult and it can be incredibly emotional, but eventually you get better because you're not living within your own head. Of him smiling, watching this. Yes, the very last shot is him watching him be outside and it's the only time in the show he genuinely smiles because he left the isolation he stepped outside of his own head to try to just do something new and to get out from inside of his own issues okay so that's it's the only way really to move past it is you have to you have to leave that isolation and reach out whether it's going for even something as simple as going for a walk or calling somebody like or physically seeing somebody and obviously it's with covid i think a lot of people are focusing more on well he was stuck inside just like i was uh so you know that's that's what it's about it's like yeah it's 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 more than that it's about more than that It's, it's a deeper thing than just what it is on a literal front Okay, I will say there was one part in the second half where I did laugh, and it was just him singing Jeffrey Bezos, you did it. That was probably the only part of the, the special I didn't get with the two Jeff Bezos songs. They didn't really say anything, it's just him singing Jeff Bezos over and over again. And I just think that's but, hilarious. I think he included it just to add some sense of randomness. A palate cleanser. Yeah, just like a little... Yeah, I got it. Like, here's something silly. Kind of just to break the tension up a little bit. Yeah, because neither one was more than like 30 seconds long. And, you know, it's really easy to make jokes about Jeff Bezos. And I mean, I think it further proves my point that you can make anything funny if you either sing it or say it in a funny voice. Yeah, Jeffrey Bezos. As far as like the visual stuff, I think that the most clever visual like aesthetic thing they did in the suit in the special was both the white woman Instagram thing because it just had that that motif and element to it that was just it was so smart and clever that I think I don't think most people are going to catch that 
unless you I did. say that. Yeah, I, it's going to go over a lot. A lot of stuff in the special is going to go over people's heads, and they're going to take it at a more literal level. This um, is why I wanted to talk about this and break this down, because I have seen so many different people take away so many different messages from this special. Some of the funnier ones are the people who are like, this is really smart, not realizing that one of the songs was directly about that type of person. I said this to my friend this morning. Uh, I said, good art makes you feel something. Great art makes you feel things you didn't know you felt. Amazing art makes you confront things about yourself that you didn't even know you needed to confront or you had felt or had not wanted to feel. There's a there's a, uh, a Bowie quote that's similar to that. Always go a little further into the water than you feel you're capable of being in. Go a little bit out of your depth. And when you don't feel that your feet are quite touching the bottom, you're just about in the right place to do something exciting. David Bowie. That's, that's a good one. Rest in peace, David Bowie. Uh, oh yeah, I, I just I just constantly were uh, the other really cool bit was uh, the song Thirty. I, th- I think it was probably the most difficult for him to do the whole show because everything else you could he he can tell was programmed or he and then you had to switch his phone light on too. I didn't catch that right away. I really didn't realize until like I think the first verse where he was doing that. I'm like. Damn, he's got a strobe set up somewhere. He's got that time, like, perfect. And then they did the chorus, and then the chorus, he had lined the the fixtures up in front of him so that when he went into the chorus and he had, it sounded like he had backup singers, there were three silhouettes of him behind him singing his backup singers. Wow. On the wall. Yeah, I need to watch this again. And then he goes into the second verse, and I realize he's using a cell phone that he's pressing against his ass to whip to create that effect. And then he's got lights on foot pedals that he's using to switch stuff around with. So he's he's lip syncing the song and memorizing the song. He's using three different foot pedals to control three it's different. It's like he's playing drums with lights. I mean, that's when we do busking or what we do uh, follow-go lighting, where, you know, most of the time people that do lights and they run concerts, they tend to just have everything time-coded. So all they got to do is hit a button and then they just hit like two or three flash buttons to kind of just sync up certain parts of it so it always matches up. Yeah. Uh, One of my my favorite lighting designers and somebody I know on Facebook, uh, the lighting designer for tools, Mark Jacobson. He does not time code anything in the show. That doesn't surprise me. Because tools just have to do everything try hard. But their shows are so visually oh, they're complicated. Incredible. Like there are lots of lighting designers I know. A guy I'm working with currently, his name's Alex Mungle, he uh, he got me a job doing some festival dates this summer. He doesn't like time coding either. So he does he does the follow-through where it's like you're basically hitting the buttons as the song goes. And like Yeah. I, when I did my porcupine tree time code last year, I basically had to do this kind of the same thing that Bo is doing in that song, but by just hitting like multiple buttons to the beat to kind of do it. 
but I recorded it as a time code because I was trying to learn how to actually time code with that particular software. That way, when I went to go record the actual footage of it, all I had to do was hit play. So it was like this minimal thing. The fact that he was just kind of doing all these things at once and singing the song and doing his own choreography on top of it, like it's, I, I've never seen anybody do anything on stage before where they were controlling everything themselves. Because even on a one-man show, you've got a stage manager calling the cues. You've got a, a board operator running the lights. You've got an audio guy running the, the mixer for the microphone. You've got a guy running the video for the projectors and everything's you know, being called by the stage manager to go, okay, go to that cue, okay, go to that cue, okay, go to that cue. And the, act, the performer on stage only has to do what he's on stage to do is perform, remember his blocking and remember his lines and do his stuff. Whereas Bo is doing everything at once. He's got a mixer on the side to make sure he's balanced. He's doing a flash drove with his phone on the beat. He's using three different pedals to mix in between three different visual looks to the song. And he's performing the song as this version of himself in the context of the song. In his underwear. In, in his underwear. And he's doing it all at the exact same time. And he's doing it all live because none of that was pre-recorded audio. That was all done. Like, it, obviously it was all mastered after the fact. Make sure that the audio levels and everything was like even throughout the whole performance. Now, but, before that song, what he said is, I'm just going to sit here and enjoy my 20s and then get back to work. That moment, I had, I'm, I'm turning 29 in less than two weeks. So that moment's coming up for me. But I've, I've had that moment already. <laughs> it's, it's, it's gotta be, it's weird, right? It actually isn't, I think. It's one of those things where when you when you hit that that age, you think that, oh, my life's up. Because when you were younger, that's how old your parents were or adults were to you. They were that age. So your frame of reference for what an adult is, is your is the 30s and upward. So to yeah. you, to people, your youth is your your kid years, your teen years, and your 20s. When you hit 30, you feel like that the best times of my life are over. And it's not, it's I think not it's really like a generational thing where our, like the millennial generation, because Gen Z hasn't had to deal with this yet, is basically, I don't feel like our generation necessarily grew up. We just grow older because we all love the same shit. We all still love cartoons. We all still love rock music, you know. And any one of my friends, if they wanted to go go, if they could just magically not have work and wanted to go go karting, I'm pretty sure most of them would say snap yes. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we can imagine our parents at like 30 doing that. So maybe it's like this false image of like a generational traditional conflict that we're all going through. And Bo actually kind of showed that without saying. All right, so our generation, and I actually read about this uh, a couple days after I turned 30, because like a few days after I turned 30, I'm like, I'm the exact same person. I don't feel any different. I don't feel any yeah. older. Like I'll probably be more weirded out when I'm in my 40s, because then I'm more significantly older. But yeah. 
a reason for it is because each generation had children at a much younger age. Truth. Post World War II, the boomers started having kids in their 40s. That that generation, the generation after that, started having children in their 30s, which is like my parents' generation, the boomers, yeah. baby boomers. They just they grew up in a time where the economy was easier, buying a house was easier and cheaper, getting married was cheaper. It was easier to be able to start a family. So they just started, they, they had children and got married at a much younger age. I think it's it's sort of inverse that now because the economy is shit. It's much, it, buying a house is very expensive. Getting married is very expensive. Having a child is just like, unless you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars set aside, it's not even like my financial, just like, Expectations. I don't have to just have a kid. Um, yeah, kind of hard to just tack that onto a budget. And I'm not. And I'm not saying that everybody's poor, but it's it's something that I that I don't think our gen, that the generation before necessarily understands because they're not ignorant of it. They're just they didn't experience it. Their experience was different than our experience. It's it's hard. It's really hard for some, and, and like that's why I think the whole like I, I don't really too much like the whole baby boomer versus millennial. I don't I don't like agit I don't like insulting another generation ahead of me or younger than me. Only because I like insulting idiots. Yeah, it, it idiots is just it's I don't like ignorant people. But it's hard for people to try to put themselves in the shoes of somebody that has a completely different life experience than what you had. You got, it goes to that conversation that we had about, I remember you were tell, talking to me about Eminem and how I felt that, uh, did I feel like Eminem kind of helped pave the way for me to get into yeah, hip hop yeah, yeah. music as I got older. And I said, to be honest, no, bands like Korn and Limp Biscuit when I was a kid or the things that kind of were the gateway for me to get into stuff like Limp Biscuit's the reason how I got into Wu-Tang Clan and then Wu-Tang Clan's how I ended up listening to a whole bunch of other stuff and by the time that NMM came out hip-hop was more accepted because there was this there, there wasn't this, this so much of a divide anymore between yeah. you know and I think new metal really kind of helped paved a big way for that because yeah Definitely. It's, I grew up, I mean, I grew up in Pasadena, Maryland. I grew up with, with a good middle-class family upbringing. You know, I lived in a nice, not a nice neighborhood, but not like, I, I live in a good, healthy neighborhood. I had a good, healthy upbringing. I didn't listen to a lot of stuff like NWA and Tupac and stuff like growing up. Oh, I, I lived in Crawford. I absolutely did. You see, I, and see, I didn't. Not because I thought it was dumb or I didn't, like, I thought, oh, it's just, just, just trash music. I just didn't, it, it felt such, so foreign to me and not, not the black experience because, you know, I grew up watching, you know, when I was with my grandparents, my parents used to work all the time. My grandparents would watch me when I was real little and I watched a lot of TV. A lot of the stuff I watched, I watched, um, I watched a lot of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I watched a lot yep. of... Uh, 
Uh, like Static Shock was a big one for me. And I've talked to Doc about this. To me, like those were never just black shows, those were just shows. The early the early nineties black sitcoms. They're all great. What was the, what was the spinoff of uh, the Cosby show? I, I for some reason it's on the tip of my tongue. Where they go to college. Oh shit. Um, I can't think of the name of it. I used to watch I used to watch the shit out of that one when I was a kid. I love that. I used, to watch, I used to watch all these shows, so I wasn't ignorant to the black American experience as a kid, but like gangster rap, just when it was at its popularity peak, was just so foreign to me that I just didn't really, I had a hard time listening to it and going, I, I don't, I can't connect with it because I don't understand it. Because it's not- I started listening to like. a lot of the, the gangster rap and stuff like that, like Tupac, Eminem, Biggie, uh, NWA, mostly because I started getting into hip hop and I like learning a genre from the ground up. So I started with them as the basics, as like the foundation. And See, then I, I worked was my like, way into my doom and Kendrick and all of the other stuff. See, I was the opposite. I, I got into, I tried listening to a lot of like the hip hop, like NWA and stuff when I was younger. I like, I like, I love NWA now when I'm older. I have a better appreciation for it. But like my introduction, yeah. like when I, after I listened to, and together now with Method Man, I'm like, I like the way that guy sounds. I like how it's clever. I like how it's, you know, my cousin was like, well, you gotta, you gotta check these guys out and check out the actual group that it's from. And I, and I got a copy of End of the 36 Chambers and it was just, it sounded so incredibly one different than everything else. It's, it's absolutely, it's one of my top 10 albums, period. And I, I still tell people all the time to this day, it's the greatest hip hop album ever made and the most influential. I I will shit up and down so I'm blue in the face and tell people that Enter the 36 if you if Enter the 36 Chambers didn't come out, hip hop would not be what it is. Boom. That's your eyelid. I am totally asking that. I am totally asking Doc that. Like I respect public enemy. I love public enemy. I respect the Beastie Boys. I respect all those all the early groups in the 80s that helped create and define and push the genre beyond just being club hits but as far as what hip-hop would turn into on a production level on a sampling level on a creative level and on just a pure artistic level because it was the first time that it's the only hip-hop and it's the earliest hip-hop that I can think of that instead of just being as upfront with like Tupac or NWA was with them just straight up talking about, you know, how they were drug dealers and what they had to do to survive in the streets and what they had to do. Okay, players rapping about like samurais and shit. Yes, but the stuff it was all metaphors. So it was yeah. a way for it was a way for people to it, it was how they related to their life and how they had Samurai movies to them gave them context to their life. And they used yeah. that to create something to help give context for people to listen to them to hear their story. And it made it easier for people like me to be able to apply it in a way that made sense. And that started like I was if people walked the path and they were like, you know, they started listening to hip hop and they kept walking, then you got like you got the biggie path, you got the Tupac path, you got you know, the NMN path and stuff like that. I, I like, I got Wu Tang. I immediately veered off 
all the pads and just kind of like went around and was just like, I kept listening to the weird shit. I was listening to Del the Funky Homo Sapien. I was listening Ooh, to MF good one. I, like, I was uh, obviously MF Doom. Um, I, there was another rapper named Shad. I poured the last beer out for MF Doom when he died. I the fact that I, I he died on my birthday or they announced his death on my birthday like absolutely ripped got to it. the mat villain. I got I got his mask somewhere. I got I got to hang it up in the office still. But I would listen to that. I would listen to hieroglyphics. I would listen to. Um, and the funny thing is, is like we can actually tie this all right back because one of the things that Bo hits on in this special at least twice is him living as a socially privileged male white straight american yeah so there was that the stock puppet song i think is interesting because the world is filled with blood he throws hidden marks of theory in there that song the the sock song reminded me a lot of uh cat the falcon and the winter soldier series oh okay this is good this is going to be a big jump. I am intrigued. So, and if you had, like, I'm, I'm gonna have to get into spoilers. Did you watch the show yet? Oh, I've seen, I've seen it all. The Sock Puppet song was interesting because my biggest takeaway from Captain America, from Falcon and Winter Soldier, Falcon and Winter Soldier was a show that was a criticism in a showing of how extremism and a lack of communication creates extremism and yeah. how it propagates it. No, nobody in that show was a villain. Even Zemo was not a villain in the show. Yeah. Everybody had their own agenda, but every single person had their worldview changed in the show not by a fight, not by some traumatic event, not by some, you know, big action set piece or piece of, you know, a MacGuffin piece of tech. They're, everybody's worldview changed slightly by just having an open conversation with somebody of the complete opposite end of a conversation. That is very true. Sam does not feel comfortable being the new Captain America, because he doesn't feel that America would accept a black. And that was another one of the big, and that was another one of the big points. And Doc even made it before they did this in the show: is should a black man want to be Captain America? And one of the major themes right. there is black culture's relationship with America. He, and he didn't, he didn't feel that he deserved it because. Steve represented what America and Americans could be. So, and Sam didn't think that he deserved to have that, which is why he gave the shield up. And of course, this argument is thrown at him from the older captain, the, the older guy that, that had the super serum. I can't think of his name, Isaiah Washington. He yeah. has that conversation with him. And Isaiah is on the one extreme end of it he believes that the mere existence of a Captain America is inherently racist because 
Isaiah did the exact same thing that Steve did, but Isaiah was in prison for 30 years because of it. And whereas tested Steve, on and tortured. And, and tested, yeah, and whereas where Steve was, you know, declared hero for it and made this big public figure um, for the nation to rally behind. Isaiah was obviously bitter, hurt, and in pain about that, and that made him Understandably so. Correct, and nobody knows who he is, because the super soldier serum wouldn't have existed as it is without Isaiah Washington, which in itself is a illusion metaphor to, um, there was a move, I'm, I should write this stuff down, I am terrible with my memory today. Important, important historical person she was a black American who was tested on, she had developed uh, a rare form of cancer and they had medicine, like medical professionals took all this tissue and DNA and genetics from her to try to combat cancer. She was never given any real credit for it, for her sacrifice and her family was never given any recognition for it either. And wow. I, I just, for whatever reason, and I feel ignorant not remembering her name just because, like, I'm, I'm being terrible with remembering names lately. But that's what the Isaiah character Washington is supposed to represent. And whereas, you know, Bucky, on the other hand, wants Sam to, you know, like, he gave you the shield. That shield means something to everybody. And it means something to me. And, you know, if he says you deserve it, you deserve it. Like, he was somebody that was above reproach. And Bucky's got his own trauma with, you know, he feels guilty about all the things that he's, you know, everybody's telling him he has to go and just apologize, blah, blah, blah. And Sam's on the so, other end of it. And, and Sam is like, just get over it. How does this come back to Sokka? Sokka, that whole song, you've got two characters that are this... They are the polar opposite ends of the extreme. And both thoughts, while correct, especially Sako, because everything Sako says is 100% correct. 100% correct. The problem is, is... Skewered. Skewered everything. The problem is, is that you can't think like that all the time. Especially if you're in a state of isolation and anxiety and depression, because all that's going to do is further validate it. And it's it's yeah. as unhealthy as unhealthy as Bo's character was during the song, where he's willfully ignorant of all of it and doesn't even want to address it, which is yeah. completely wrong to begin with. Like on the other side of it, you know. You can't have the plight of the entire world on your shoulders if you're not taking care of yourself first. You can't worry, like, if you're in your house by yourself and you haven't showered in weeks and you haven't left or groomed or taken care of yourself and you're not talking to anybody, you can't worry about what the hell's going on in Palestine, Israel. Yeah. You can't worry about what's going on the Black Lives Matter protests. It's gonna create an unhealthy attachment to what's going on in the world and you're gonna put all of your dopamine fixes and energy into that. I was guilty of it last year. 
there was a lot of people guilty of it. It does not mean that you ignore all of it. Acknowledging yeah. it, being a good ally, being somebody that helps, doing what you can to make the place better right, with those issues, you know, is what you're supposed to do. I personally know people whose entire existence is to fight the plights of other people, and they do not take care of themselves. If it's not one thing, it's some other cause and it's some other protest. And like this one person I know from college, it's, I applaud the hell out of her because she's such a good person. She's a caring person and, you know, one of the nicest people I ever met. But the only thing I ever see on her on social media is just constantly at protests for a thousand things. I just couldn't be angry like that all the time. I, I, I couldn't. I, it got, I was really upset about what with, with happened with George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests. I've had friends, you know, that are black that, have, that you know, I work with in the city that that's happened to. And yeah. they had these interactions with the police that it's happened to. I had a situation last winter where two cops got shot in my neighborhood. I remember, I remember this. You were on the news. And I was like, I was on the news because I watched them arrest the guy because he was hiding out in the house behind mine because we couldn't leave the neighborhood. They found him in the house. They like tear gassed the house. Then they gently put him in handcuffs and they put him in an unmarked cop car and took him to the station before anybody could know what was going on so he wouldn't be harmed. When I saw that initially, I was like, you know, you got to keep him safe so that he can face justice properly, which he's doing. He is doing a significant life sentence because of it. But when I saw the George Floyd murder and I saw how they treated him and compared that to a guy that actually shot two cops and had a fentanyl lab in the house, that pissed me off because there's a there there was a gap in that being stuck in the house, not having an, a creative outlet, not having a physical outlet because of COVID made I think a lot of people narrow in down what I've referred to. Yeah, the world sucks. The world, but like, I, the thing is, is like people like to say all the time, like, oh man, the world sucks now. It's terrible now. Everyone, I'm like, no, 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 no. The world has always sucked. There's always been problems. There's always been people mistreated and misrepresented and treated violently and discriminated against since dawn of time. It's always existed. We're just seeing it at a much more heightened level now because of social media, we have immediate access to watching it unfold, which is in a way a good thing because if we didn't have smartphones and people weren't filming that George Floyd murder when it happened, none of that shit would have ever happened. We wouldn't, I, you and I would not have known who that guy was. But that song is all about, you know, not you can't over like as much as it's important to be aware of this and to you know fight for good causes and to stand up for people that are oppressed and you know you can't obsess over it and have it consume your life at the same time you have to still live your life you still have to take care of yourself and that song is two people on the two polar opposite sides dealing with it and unfortunately the one side that is clearly in the wrong by being willfully ignorant of it and threatening the other 
with going into limbo ends up winning which you know it's I, I you absolutely should protest you should absolutely you know march in the streets and stand up for your rights and stand up for the plight of the oppressed you also have to take care of yourself first and if you're not in a good place mentally yourself first you're not doing anybody any good out in the real world Look, it's a flood. It's flooding. Get away. Quick, we need to get to higher ground. Open the floodgates. Wait, why can't we talk about black stuff? It is time to talk about black stuff.